Well, good morning. I've got to tell you, before we get started, this uh, passage has intimidated me more than any we have looked at so far. Uh, it's not because it's particularly difficult to understand. It really isn't. And it's not because it doesn't have much to say. In fact, it's got so much to say. There are so many implications for every area of our life coming out of this passage that that's why I'm overwhelmed. Uh, this passage reveals the, the heart and the point of the gospel. And it's too big for me. It's, it's too important. How can we hope to do it justice this morning? How can we hope to even begin to get our arms around it? How can I help you see just how far-reaching and life-changing the truths of this passage really are? Well, for the last eight chapters of Mark, we've been set up for this passage. The very first line of the book of Mark is the beginnings of the good news about Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Right from the first line, we've known that He is the Christ. But what does that mean? Several years ago, they did a survey of the religious knowledge of Americans, and one of the incredible things that uh, they uncovered was that an awful lot of Americans think that Christ is Jesus' last name. You know, you've got... John Smith, and Jesus Christ. Like if you're going to write him a letter, you'd write Jesus T. Christ and write his address under it. You see, Christ is not his surname. Christ is his title. It's who he is. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. But what does that mean? And how did the disciples begin to understand that and see the implications for their own life and for their ministries and, in fact, the implications that led to all the writing of the rest of the New Testament? And what was the message of the Christ? What was He come to tell us? As the disciples walked with Jesus, they had been confronted with His amazing authority in His teaching. They'd been impressed with his, his compassion as he, he hugged the leper and healed him. They, they had seen his, his patience as he healed the paralytic whose friends had torn apart Peter's roof right in the middle of one of Jesus' teaching. They'd see, they'd seen Jesus' unconventional attitudes as he ate with tax gatherers and sinners and confronted the Pharisees about their own narrow legalistic approach to life. These guys had seen that Jesus was adequate to meet any need. No matter how scary the situation, Jesus could handle it, like the demon-possessed guy in the graveyard or, or the storm on the sea. And they'd seen that, that uh, Jesus was really the answer to their own ministries as Jesus sent them out. And then they came back to, to see the shepherd of Israel feed the 5,000 and, and the Lord of the seas walk on the water. They saw more of who he was when, when he uh, delivered the daughter of the Gentile woman. There Jesus loved that woman as an individual and the deaf man as an individual. But he also demonstrated his heart, his desire for Gentiles as well as Jews. And that was a message that was reaffirmed in the feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles. But you see, all of this is just the setup. 
All of these uh, insights into who Jesus is, into his, his authority, his revelations of his power and character, are all focused on this one little passage. Well, here we are. We've been moving to this passage for about four months now. But you know what? After I read this passage, and I am going to eventually read it, after I read this passage, you're going to feel the anti-climax. You know, this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the book of Mark. And the truths of this passage should come with fanfare and fireworks. But they don't. They come with confusion and struggle. But realize you've been set up for that too. Last week we talked about our need to have our hearts opened, our our, our hearts softened, our eyes opened, our ears unplugged. And unless that happens, you will never grasp what we're talking about here today. Because the message of this passage flies more directly into the face of our natural way of thinking, into uh, the face of our feelings, than any passage we've looked at, or probably ever will look at. If ever your flesh wants your eyes closed, it's today. May God, in His grace, open them. So anyway, let's get get into it. Let me read. We're in Mark 8, starting with verse 12. 27. Let me just read the first, or let me read the whole passage, not that long, and then we'll start our way through it. And Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, Thou art the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. And he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Caesarea of Philippi, where they're headed, is directly north of Bethsaida, where they've been. And Bethsaida is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So they're headed up north toward the, uh, the base, the foot of Mount Hermon, where Jesus is going to be transfigured. Caesarea Philippi was a city that was built in honor of and dedicated to the deity of Caesar. Philip, who controlled this area of uh, of Palestine or of, of the Middle East, was kind of kissing up to Caesar, so he built this city and then named it for him and dedicated it to him. And this city is is in 
Philip's territory, so it's Caesarea Philippi. Anyway, while they're walking toward this city, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And all the disciples are crowded around and they're all sharing things they have heard and maybe even joking about some of the ideas that people have. You know, some people think that you're John the Baptist. Now, that's impossible. How could that be? Jesus and John the Baptist were alive at the same time, sometimes in the same place at the same time. But some of the people never even heard of Jesus until after John the Baptist had disappeared. And they were so similar in their messages and character that people were confusing the two. In fact, this was a rumor that that Herod had spread, that John the Baptist had come back to life because Herod's conscience was so guilty. But anyway, these people didn't realize that that was impossible. Another idea that came out that somebody said, well, some people think that you are Elijah. I realize this is not a belief in reincarnation. Elijah never died. Elijah was taken directly into heaven on a fiery chariot. And in the last two verses of the entire Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, God promises that he will send Elijah back at the time of the Messiah. So the Jews that knew their, their prophecy well were looking for Elijah to come back and bring the Messiah. Even today... In some Jewish homes, during the celebration of the Passover, a place is set at table for Elijah. And at one point during the celebration, they go and open the front door of the house, just in case Elijah has finally come, bringing the Messiah. Well, in chapter 9, Elijah does come in person. But you see, all of these ideas about who Jesus was, all had him as the guy that came to set things up for the main man. None of them really realized that he was the main man. Finally, one of the other disciples said, Well, some people think you're a prophet, like the Old Testament prophets. People were excited. God has finally spoken again, sent his messenger. Well, these people were partly right. God has spoken, but not through just a messenger, through his son, through the Messiah, through the anointed one. You see, these speculations about who Jesus was were used to, to uh, introduce this whole section. Back in chapter 6, we had the exact same speculations. This whole section focuses on who Jesus is. And now we have the same speculations given, bringing that section to a close. Like I said, the disciples were each sharing the things that they had heard, maybe even laughing as they told Jesus some of these ideas that people had. But Jesus stops in the middle of the road, and he turns to them, and he says, Who do you say that I am? And they fell suddenly silent and serious, because this was no longer the comfortable conversation of talking about what other people think, what other people say. This was the uncomfortable moment for declaring themselves. So Peter steps forward, puts into words what was on the other's mind, but they were hesitant to say. Peter says, you are the Christ. There, he said it. You are the Christ. Now, what a powerful, overwhelming statement. You are the Christ. They had finally put it together. Their eyes were open. They understood. They saw Jesus for who he was. You know, at this point, we would expect the fanfare, the explosion of the fireworks. You are the Christ. He is the Messiah. He has been revealed. 
We expect Jesus to throw off his robe, revealing a big C on his chest and a red cape, and fly through the air to go right all wrongs and, and to free and liberate the oppressed Israel. That's not the way the script goes, though. See, in fact, Jesus rebukes them. That's the word that's translated sternly warn them. It's the same word for when he rebuked Peter and when Peter rebuked him. He rebukes them. He says, don't tell anyone. Come on, Jesus. Give these guys a break. They finally put it together. And he rebukes them. You know, what a jolt. What an unexpected twist. But remember, Jesus doesn't twist these guys for nothing. He doesn't slap them like this unless he's got something mighty important for them to understand. You see, they now know who he is, but it's essential that they come to understand what that means. So immediately he starts telling them what's going to happen from here. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He starts telling them that he's going to have to suffer all kinds of things. And he starts giving them the details of that suffering. And then he tells them that the the, uh, elders and the chief priests and the scribes are going to reject him. Now the word reject means to examine and to find something worthless, useless. It's used of, of looking at a piece of pottery and discovering that it is so flawed it can only be thrown away. It's worth nothing. And Jesus is saying that the leaders and thinkers and teachers of their society are going to examine him and find him totally useless, worthless, needing to be discarded in in order to follow more important, more practical philosophies and priorities. And then Jesus tells them plainly that they are going to kill him and that he'll rise again. Well, you know, this was too much for Peter. And this was too confusing, too disorienting, too contrary to the way that he knew it was supposed to be. I mean, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed one, the one chosen of God. In the Old Testament, the ones that were anointed were the prophets and the kings and the high priests. And the Messiah was the, the convergence of all three of these packed into one. He was going to be like the powerful prophets of old who could call down fire from heaven like Elijah who, who, who wiped out the 40, 400 prophets of Baal. Jesus could just point his staff at people and fry them. He's going to be like King David who killed his ten thousands and ruled all of Palestine. Jesus was going to rule the world. Now how could it be that these petty little leaders in, in Jerusalem were going to judge him and kill him? Ha! Uh, that can't be. He's the Messiah. He could evaporate these guys. He could waste them with a breath. Peter knew the expectations. He had heard all the stories growing up of what the Messiah would be and what he would do. And here Jesus is getting it all confused. So Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. He says, Jesus, stop it. Stop this silly talk. And you're freaking everybody out. You're confusing us. You're the Messiah. You don't have to let any of this stuff happen. You can can dismiss all of these things with just a word. 
You can waste all of these people. You're going to establish your kingdom and no one can stand before you. You don't have to let any of these sufferings that you're talking about happen. You don't have to go through this. And turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not thinking like God, but like man. Did you hear that first phrase there in verse 33? And turning around and seeing his disciples. Now, why did he say that? Why, why is that there? What does turning around and seeing his disciples have to do with why he rebuked Peter? Well, let me tell you what I think. See, I think the things that Peter said were hard for Jesus to deal with. I think what Peter said was absolutely true. Jesus didn't have to go through all of this. He could just vaporize his enemies, say the word, and then burst into flames. He could just clean the face of the earth off, restore it to its pristine and clean and beautiful condition, and start all over. He could have it all and wouldn't have to suffer a bit. I mean, that would be the easy way. That would be the simplest way. That almost sounded good. Who wants to suffer and be humiliated and die, especially when that death involved excruciating separation from the Father? Why do it? And then Jesus turned and he saw his disciples. This ragtag, motley bunch of guys huddled over there, these worried and confused faces staring at him. And he knew that if he took the easy way, if he avoided the cross, if he, if he saved himself, he'd never see these guys again. They were lost. They would go to an eternity without him. And so moved, strengthened by his love for them, he refused the temptation. And he turned away from it. You know, and I'm convinced that given the same choice, if Jesus was standing right here where I am, looking out at you, this ragtag congregation, he would make the same decision. Looking at you, he would be moved by love to choose the cross, to choose to suffer for you. Well, Jesus' rebuke to Peter is strong. You know, in the, the well-meaning, at least seemingly well-meaning and caring words of his friend, Jesus heard another voice. He heard the voice of the enemy. The same voice that he had heard offering him an alternative to God's plan back in the, in the desert where he was for 40 days. You know, I, I don't think this means that, that Peter was possessed by Satan. I think Peter was just thinking like a man, like a human. Uh, that's what I think the phrase, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's, is really talking about. It's literally, you are not thinking like God about the things of God or the ways of God. You're thinking about, about the ways of man, like man. It's not an issue of one interest versus the other. It's not man's interest versus God's interest. If Jesus was only interested in God's interest... And the suffering would have been pointless. No, Jesus is preeminently interested in man's interests. But the problem was that Peter was thinking like a limited, confused 
human being, like we all think. And, and his logic led him to say, hey, avoid the pain at all costs. Take the easy way, even if others have to suffer. You're the important one here. Watch out for yourself. Don't be a chump. Nice guys finish last, Jesus. You know, grab the power. Grab the pleasure. Grab all the goodies you can while you can. That's the way people think. And so naturally, logically, that's the way Peter thought. But that way of thinking comes from the distortion and deception of Satan. And Satan was picking up on it to try to tempt Jesus. Now, often the enemy will use the well-intentioned, sympathetic advice of friends to draw us, to lure us away from God's plan for us, especially when that plan is hard. You know, a friend will say, leave your husband. He's a jerk. I don't know how you stuck with him for this long. And you deserve better. Or somebody will say, I would have been mad too if I was you. You had every right to say what you say. Don't apologize. It's their problem. Don't try to go and be reconciled. Or somebody will say, you've been working for this company a long time. They don't pay you half what you're worth. Go ahead, take that stuff home. They'll never miss it. But see, Jesus knows where this is coming from. He can hear behind it. He knows who's suggesting these things. And so he rejects it. And he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, that's an idiom, and it can literally mean fall back or shrink back. In John 18, when they come to arrest Jesus and they finally see Jesus, Jesus says, here I am, they shrink back. So what Jesus is saying is, back off, Satan. Get out of here. Leave me alone. See, Jesus rejects that way of thinking and chooses to think like his father. Then verse 34, we're told that he summoned the multitude with the disciples and then he started teaching them. Is my uh, amplification changed? Is it still on? Yes. (laughs) Sorry. Anyway, he summoned these guys and then started teaching. I think the reason we're told that he summoned the multitude is because this stuff that he's going to say now is not just for the leaders. It's not just for the super spiritual. This is the basic stuff for everybody. He says, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is what it means to truly be a Christian. Now, that term Christian is a very hard one to define, and people are very sensitive about it. Just several months ago, I was talking to a gentleman, and I mentioned that I had become a Christian. And that bothered him, because somehow it implied that he wasn't a Christian if he hadn't gone through the same experience that I had. Well, this guy, this man, didn't believe in the Bible. He didn't believe in any afterlife. He thought religion was a weakness. But still, even my unintentional uh, implication that somehow he wasn't a Christian, was offensive to him. And that confused me until I realized that what he meant by being a Christian was being a nice guy. And for me to imply that he wasn't a Christian was for me to imply that he was a bad person. You see, the word Christian means different things to different people. 
To some people, it means they've been baptized. To others, it means that they're part of an ethnic group. To other people, it means they believe the Bible. Some, it means that they occasionally pray or, or go to church. It means different things to different people. If you ask most Americans whether they are Christians, they will tell you yes. But you see, this passage bypasses all of the semantics. And it cuts straight to the heart of it. Betty Chaddock used to have a sign in her office that said, Know thyself, N-O thyself. But see, we've got to realize that what Jesus is saying here is far more radical than just saying no to a piece of chocolate or another cigarette. It's even more radical than saying no to that temptation to cheat on your spouse or on your taxes. To deny yourself is saying no to an entire way of living, of thinking, of being. It's to say no to the desire, the the compulsion to try to control your own life. It's to say no to your, your feelings, your logic, your intuition. It's to say no to seeking to find joy and peace, happiness, satisfaction, freedom, rest in anyone other than the Lord. It's to say no to the natural tendency to protect and preserve your reputation, your pride, your interests, your very life. And then the next step, take up your cross. Now crosses in those days weren't pretty little religious symbols that you wear around your neck or in an earring. Crosses were ugly reminders of death. When somebody picked up their cross, they were on their way to die. When you saw somebody carrying a cross, you would never see them again. They were dead. The only thing left was the painful process of dying. You see, they didn't ever again sit down to a meal. They didn't go to work. They didn't go camping or or boating. They never again played with their children. It was all over. You hear people say talk about the crosses they have to bear, and they're referring to a a nosy stepmother or or a mother-in-law. Or they're they're referring to the fact that they have allergies. But a cross was not a minor inconvenience. It was the end. It was over. And finally, the third step was following Him. You know, the game of follow the leader is a good illustration of this. Do what you see him doing. Obey what he says. Assume his outlook. Adopt his approach to people and situations. This is radical stuff. Especially since from the outset he's told us that this would involve suffering. It would hurt. It would bring on humiliation. To follow Jesus means to abandon our control of our own lives, to abandon our self-preservation and our goals in life, our our dreams and, and, and ambitions and hopes, and to consider ourselves dead, to write it all off, nothing left to lose. And in that condition, to follow Jesus, to follow Him 
to pain and humiliation and death. Such a deal. Now, how can our our ears be open to hear this kind of thing? How can our eyes see it? How can our hearts be open to this? Well, verse 35, Jesus explains, and there he gives us the key to understanding him, to understanding his attitudes and behavior, to understanding following him. He says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. Get a grip on this one and you have all spiritual truth wired. You see, you gain life by losing it. If you try to grab it, you lose it. You get by giving. If you hold on, you lose. You lead by serving. You stand tall by kneeling. You, you are exalted by humbling yourself. If you exalt yourself, you will be brought low. See, that's the way it works. That is reality. That is what God teaches. And it sounds so contrary, so backwards to everything that feels right and sounds right. Everything we would think, or what our logic would tell us. It just seems so contrary. That's why even the way I phrase it is in contradictions. It just seems upside down. But that's why we need to die to ourselves. Because if we trust our own logic, our own intuition, our feelings, more than we trust Jesus, then we will never follow Him and we will never find life. That's what Jesus wants for us, is life. But the only way to find it is to follow Him to death and through death. See, He calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Him. Not because He wants the pain for us, but because He knows the joy on the other side. That's why He went through it all Himself. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right side of the throne of God. You see, He endured the pain. It wasn't for nothing. He didn't like the pain, but he endured the pain for the joy of saving us, of having us with him for eternity, for the joy of his glory. See, he went through the shame not because he didn't want glory. He wanted glory, and that was the only way to get it. We follow Jesus not to a permanent grave, but to a temporary grave and a permanent life. A woman does not go through the pain of childbirth Because she likes pain. She does it out of love for that child and out of the hope, the expectation of the joy of having that child. Is it wrong to want to be respected? Is it wrong to want glory? Is it wrong to want rest or peace or love or approval or security, excitement, praise, joy, freedom? No, it's not wrong. In fact, these are the things that God offers us. But He offers them as byproducts of following Christ, of following Jesus. If we go out after these things on our own, in our own human limitations and folly, we will lose them all. 
Now, if I go out after, if I'm seeking respect and willing to compromise myself in order to gain respect from others, I will lose my self-respect and no other respect will ever satisfy. If, on the other hand, I die to others' respect and am willing to be thought a fool for Christ and the gospel then I not only gain my self-respect, but someday when all things are seen as they really are, others will be forced to respect me as someone who lived the truth. If I go into my marriage seeking to be loved, seeking my wife's love, and I clutch it and I grab it, then I'm going to suffocate her and push her away in my desperation. But if I go into that marriage in obedience to my Lord, to love my wife, in His love, then I will experience His satisfying love. And though not necessarily, will probably enjoy the love of my wife as well. If I seek security in my job, satisfaction will always be just around the corner, always requiring a little bit more of my time, a little bit more of my soul. But if I die to that, and I seek security only in my God, but I do my work to the best of my ability, as unto the Lord, serving Him, glorifying Him, then I will find joy, satisfaction in my job, no matter how much drudgery is there. If I seek rest by trying to push the needs of others, trying to push the needs of my children out of my view and force that rest, I will end up unhappy and frustrated and all the more tired. But if I die to that need, if I die to my own agenda and seek to love in God's strength, then my soul will be refreshed and I will find times of rest set aside for me by my caring Father. If I seek freedom by trying to throw off the control of my parents as a child or or by trying to throw off the constraints of truth as an adult, I'll find myself a miserable slave to sin. But if I die to freedom and follow my Lord's words, I will know the truth and the truth will set me free. I'll experience a freedom I couldn't have imagined. If I want to hold on to my money and to my resources because what's mine is mine. I need it for myself, for my pleasures, for my security. And that money is going to dry up and blow away. And even if I've got it, the joy will disappear and the security will never materialize. Where if I die to that, if I die to my control over my money and my things and give them wholly to the Lord and use them to provide and love my family and my church and my neighbor, and God will multiply that or at least it will have been a joy to me and my God will supply every one of my needs. You see, that's the way it works. That's what we're talking about here. While I die to my desire for glory and seek only to glorify my Lord, I receive unimagined glory. As I die to, to, to my quest for peace, I receive unexplainable peace. As I die to riches, I'm given unlimited wealth. As I die to rest, I mount up on wings like eagles. As I die 
to freedom. I'm set free. As I die to my future, I receive a future and a hope. This is the way of the cross. This is a terrifying way. This is a painful way. It hurts to not be respected. It hurts to love and not be loved back. It is scary to give up my security and my control of my resources. It's scary to walk away from an easy job if that's what God's calling me to. It's hard to turn away from my lusts for bigger and better things, for houses and cars and clothes. But this is it. This is the way of the cross. The only way, really. The hard part is believing this when it feels so contradictory. When everybody in the world seems to be moving in a different direction, living on a different basis, and and, and they consider this approach to be silly, even pitiful. You know, we really do want to trust God, but this stuff is hard. Reminds me of the guy that fell off the cliff at the Grand Canyon, sliding off the edge, and just before the last drop, 200 feet down, grabs a hold of a root, and he's hanging there, his feet dangling, shouts, cries out to heaven, Is anybody up there? This voice comes out of the clouds and says, Yes, I'm here. What would you have me to do for you? He says, Save me, Lord. The voice says, Okay. Do you trust me? Yes, Lord, I trust you. Then let go, and I'll take care of you. Guy hangs on that root for a little bit, looks down, his feet dangling there. Thanks for a second. Is there anybody else up there? (laughs) But you see, there is no other way to life. The things of God do sound like foolishness to men. He does call on us to let go. And if we refuse, we lose. That's what the next couple of verses, verses 36 and 37, are really saying. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You see... Even if you just shine everything you've heard today on, just forget about it and go after what the world can give. You seek security in your job and rest in your recreation. You you go after wealth and influence, fame, success. Even if you make it, even if you reach the top, there's a couple of things you've got to know, you've got to deal with. First of all, even in this life, in this world, you can't save your soul. Now, the word soul here, the word for life, all the way through these passages, is the exact same word. And it refers to our inner life, our consciousness, our center. It's that which animates our physical bodies, and it's also our our emotions and our thinking and our spirits. And even if you are an absolute success by the world's standards, you can't save your soul. You can't bring yourself satisfaction or peace, or contentment, or joy, or freedom. Now think about the successful of this world, the powerful, the wealthy. There's no joy, there's no freedom in that. And even in the Old Testament, a guy like Nebuchadnezzar, 
one of the most powerful men, one of the most wealthy men ever, ruled the world and went insane. Or, or somebody like Howard Hughes, who was terribly wealthy, but died a terrified recluse. You see, you can't heal your heart with lies. But even more to the point, what good will any of that do you in the next world? You really can't take it with you. Is there anything worth that risk? Verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So you can't have it both ways. You can't play games here. There are two roads in front of you. One road is wide, well lit, seems to go on up to the stars. It's crowded with smiling people, rich and beautiful people. And over that road, a big sign says life. And off in another direction is a dark, narrow path seems to lead down into the darkness. And that road is empty except for one man ahead of you. One man who says, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. And whether you call yourself a Christian or not, this is the choice. This is what it all comes down to. Choose your way. Well, let's pray. Lord, I uh, admit that every time I read this passage, I get frightened again. I don't like to suffer. I don't want pain, God. But I trust you that this is the only way to follow you, to abandon myself to you, to die with you. I trust you that if I choose not to do this, I'll lose everything. But if I choose to follow you like this, I'll gain everything. So, Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes to see, unplug our ears, soften our hearts so that we can embrace this and to give ourselves to you unreservedly, to follow you to the cross, to consider ourselves dead, to give you complete control. Let's pray this in your name. Amen.